expectation that God will meet with us in his word, that we come to John 16. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 16. Uh, We'll be looking this morning at John chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 25 down to the end of verse 33. John chapter 16, verse 25 down to the end of verse 33. Friends, um, as we are working through this text this morning, I have titled this morning sermon, Jesus Overcomes the World. Jesus Overcomes the World. John chapter 16, verse 25, down to the end of verse 33. Friends, let us read God's word together. The word of God says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the Father, I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Beloved, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before your throne, Lord, as beggars at the table. Lord, we're not worthy to to be in your presence. Yet, Father, in Christ Jesus, you have welcomed us, and we may call you our Father, and we may rejoice that our sin is has been atoned for and our guilt removed. Father, how we rejoice that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now as your dear children, Lord, we come to your throne, Lord, and and plead with you, Lord, in the name of Christ, that you would teach us from your word, that you would uh, instruct, O Lord, and, and not only put truth in our minds, but stir our affections by your spirit, O Lord, to love and honor Christ, to serve you more faithfully, Father. O Spirit, we pray, please guard us from error, Please guide us into all truth. Father, we are trusting ourselves and trusting ourselves to your sovereign grace. Father, have mercy on us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, friends, we are wrapping up uh, our, our time together in John chapter 16, and we are going to move in the next few weeks to the very end of this farewell discourse. But this is the last bit of teaching that Jesus is giving directly to his disciples. Now, John 17, he's going to let his disciples overhear what he's saying as he prays to the Father. But this, in a sense, is the conclusion of this discourse. Jesus is saying he's wrapping up uh, everything that he's been talking about. And this has been a most magnificent discourse. This has been one glorious night with the Master as the disciples have gotten to hear the heart of their Savior, hear the the, 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 what is moving the Lord Jesus in these last few hours as he's together with the, 
with the disciples in the upper room as he's preparing for the cross. And he said some hard things. Uh, He has been telling the disciples some very difficult truths. And those truths have not only been difficult for the disciples, but they have been difficult for us. Uh, In fact, Jesus has been telling the disciples things like this. I'm going to leave you. I will not be with you bodily for much longer, but I will send my spirit to be with you. And my spirit will guide you into all truth. And Jesus told the disciples that in the world they would have tribulation. They would have conflict. That they would be the objects of the world's hatred because the world first hated him. And so the disciples are wrestling and trying to put all the pieces together. But, but in one sense, friends, Jesus has even said, I have much more to teach you, but you cannot bear it now. But after the resurrection the disciples will begin to understand. The resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit will lead the disciples to begin to put all the pieces in place. And then they will minister in the name of Christ. And so, friends, we see that Jesus is talking with the disciples. um, And he says in verse 25 that he's been speaking to them in, uh, in figures of speech. And this is not only pertaining to the the manner in which he's speaking, but also to the matter. That is not just the way in which he's teaching, but actually the subject matter. In verse 25, he says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Well, what kinds of figures of speech has Jesus been using? Well, as any good teacher, he's been using illustrations. Um, And it's speaking not just of the previous discourse where he was talking about the woman in childbirth, but he was speaking of illustrations like the vine. Remember in John 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus has used illustrations. He's used these figures of speech. But more than that, friends, that, that term for figures of speech really can address just the, uh, uh, the actual content that it is a little more difficult for the disciples to grasp. And Jesus is saying, I have spoken to you the truth and I have been working through it. I've been teaching you the, the fullness of the gospel, but I know that you have not been able to digest everything yet. Uh, that, as it were, Jesus is saying, much of this you will still need to reflect upon uh, and the Spirit will teach and enlighten you. But here in verse 25, he says there's an hour coming. Again, that's speaking of the hour of his passion, the hour of his death and resurrection. And after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, Jesus is saying that his speech will become more clear to the disciples, that he will be speaking to them plainly. And that this clarity of speech, they will be able to understand and appreciate what he's saying more. And it will be regarding the Father. Now remember, friends, it is the Son of God who, in one sense, reveals to us the glory of the Father. Friends, we know God the Father in and through his Son, Jesus Christ. And friends, that's the wonderful privilege we have as believers. Friends, As believers, as those who have come to repent of our sin and trust and follow Jesus, we have access to the Father. And we may call him Father. Have you thought 
dear Christian, about what it means that you may call God your father. Now, friends, for many of us, we've had wonderful fathers, uh, godly men that we adore and respect, and, and we just are so thankful to God for all that they have done and how they've ministered to us. But friends, some of us may not have had good fathers. And friends, sometimes that's a struggle for us when we hear the scriptures talk about God as our father in heaven. Sometimes, friends, we can import into that our own past and our own circumstances, right? But I want you to remember, friends, that God the Father is the true and perfect Father. He defines fatherhood in His loving care, in His goodness and faithfulness. So, friends, we measure fatherhood not based on the fathers we've had or the fathers others have had, but we measure true fatherhood by the standard of God Himself. He is our Father in heaven. And friends, what that means is, is he's, he's not just your father and my father individually, but he's our father corporately. So friends, one thing we're reminded of is as we come to know our father in heaven, that there is a sense in which it's not just a, a lone you know, relationship. It's not just me and my father. It's us and our father who are in heaven. And that is he is revealed to us by the Son. So it is as we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ that we begin to know and love our Father in heaven. And it's, again, friends, our Father has thrown his arms open and in Christ Jesus, he has welcomed us into his family. This is your privilege as adopted children. You're not only a pardoned criminal. It's it's not just that the judge of heaven and earth has said, I acquit you. I wiped the slate clean. You're free to go. But now, as I've told you, it's as though the judge steps down from the bench. He throws his arm around you. And he says, my dear child, now it's time for you to come home with me. He brings us into the most intimate relationship imaginable. The father brings us into the same quality of communion that he has with his own son. We are brought into the very bosom of the Father. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying to the disciples, I know right now you can't appreciate all this. You know, friends, sometimes these doctrines, like the doctrine of adoption, we can have in our minds, but sometimes it takes a while for it to really penetrate and govern the affections of our heart. It's one thing for me to be able to say, well, in Christ, I am a child of God. Check. Doctrine established. It's another thing for, sometimes for me to feel that. Since I am a child of God, since I am redeemed in Christ, since I have the Father's name stamped upon me, that means all of this. It means I have a new family. It means I have a new Heritage. It means I have a, a new legacy. My, my life, my glory, my joy is bound up with my Father and Christ my Savior. Friends, again, we must pray that the Holy Spirit take these truths and, and, and press them in. You know, kind of like, like water, hot water being, you know, dripped over the coffee beans, right? The Holy Spirit takes that truth and begins to pull it in 
in and pull it out until we begin to know and rejoice in the truth of who Christ is and what he's done for us. So friends, let me encourage you this morning to ponder your adoption, to rejoice in God the Father who has adopted you in Christ, who has put his name upon you, and and the joy and privilege you have in knowing him in the Lord Jesus. So in verse 26, he says that in that day, in the day of Christ's resurrection, and ascension, when the pieces begin to fall into place for the disciples. And out of that sorrow and grief, joy has been, joy has dawned. Jesus says, you will begin to ask in my name. You'll begin to ask the Father for the things that you need. You will begin to ask according to my glory and my will. And Jesus says, I want you to know that my mediation, verse 26, as your great high priest doesn't mean that it's some mechanical relationship you have with the Father. You know, Jesus is trying to make sure the disciples understand that the Father himself loves them. And therefore, friends, the Father himself loves you. And why does he love you, dear disciple? Because, verse 27, you have loved me, Jesus says, and have believed that I came from God. Friends, have you ever felt like you can't come to God the Father? You know, friends, sometimes we can, we can think in those terms. We can think and, and we can have this sort of caricature of the gospel where it's something like this. Well, you know, God the Father, he is very holy and angry. And, and he is. He's a just judge of all the earth. He said, I will not clear the guilty. He is a, a holy fire. He is a consuming fire, the scriptures say. But sometimes, friends, we think, well, I can't come to the Father, but I can come to Christ. And and we can think in our minds that the gospel was sort of like this, that, that Jesus looked at the Father and he said, Father, if I die for these, my people, will you love them? If I pour out my life on Calvary's cross, Father, will you extend your hand of mercy to them? And sometimes in our minds, friends, we can think of the gospel as, the loving son, the Lord Jesus, persuading a reluctant, begrudging father to have mercy on us poor sinners. But that's not the gospel at all. Friend, your redemption, your salvation as a believer originated in the heart of the father. He is the fountainhead of redeeming love. He is the wellspring of saving affection. It was out of that great Love of the Father for His Son that He said, Oh dear Son, because I love you, I will choose to love these rebels and sinners, these enemies of mine who have plotted nothing but evil and malice against me, who have rejected my rule and my goodness and grace. The Father says, I will love them for your sake, Lord. I will love them for your sake, Jesus. And He set His love upon us. And out of that love of the Father, Christ came into the world. Because he loved the Father and would love that church which the Father had given to him. That bride which the Father had prepared for him. That people whom the Father had given to him over to rule. Out of the great triune love, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have chosen to love 
us. So Jesus wants us to understand that it's not a mechanical relationship. It's it's a warm, intimate fellowship. And why does the Father love his church? Because we have believed that Christ came from God, that he is who he says he is, the Redeemer appointed for us, the Savior of sinners, the one and only name given under heaven by which we must be saved, and because we have loved him. Friends, faith and love, true faith and true love can't be separated. If we are trusting in Christ as our Savior, if we are putting our life in his hands and saying, Lord Jesus, I have no righteousness to claim. I have nothing but my sin, but I believe and I'm hoping that, Lord Jesus, you have done all that God requires for me, that you have lived and died and risen again for my redemption. Friends, if we are trusting in Christ, then there will also be holy love. Faith and love can't be separated from one another. A trust, a holy trust in the Lord Jesus will look like holy affection. Remember, Jesus says, you know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will abide in me. Friends, we've talked about the doctrine of justification. Uh, Justification means uh, that means by which a holy God reckons sinners to be just. And we know that the grounds of this is not our righteousness, but it is the righteousness of Christ. It is Christ in all of his righteousness that is reckoned to us as sinners when we put our trust in Jesus. We add nothing. Christ has done everything. God says the life that Jesus lived, I reckon to have been lived by you, O sinner, when you trust in my son. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. We don't add to it. We can't take from it. It's all in Jesus. Now, friends, that faith by which we lay hold of Christ is not a dead faith. It is a living faith, a vital faith, a faith that truly brings union and communion with Christ the Savior. We are bound in Him by the Spirit, and that union with Christ through faith will always inevitably produce the fruits of love, obedience. We begin to look like Christ in our character, not perfectly, but this evidence will emerge. Friends, remember, you know that the branch is truly in the vine when it bears fruit. If the branch does not bear fruit, it's not sharing in the life of the vine. Christ, the true vine, has all the life, all the salvation, all of the glory. Our life is in him. And we are united to him by his spirit and through faith. So friends, Jesus is saying here that the father loves you. And you have communion with him because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Friends, true holy love 
and true living faith are inseparable. So friends, practical application. We must examine ourselves to see whether we do indeed have a holy love for Christ. Do we love Jesus? Not just in a sort of, you know, abstract sort of gloss over the surface, but but friends, do we love the Lord Jesus the way that he's told us that love looks like? A love that means we are trusting in him, a love that means we are zealous to keep his commands, a love that says, Lord Jesus, all that you command I will do, all that you prohibit I will forsake. Friends, is that love for the Lord Jesus controlling us so that we say in every circumstance, Lord Jesus, how may I please you? How may I honor you? Because friends, love in the scriptures is is more than just warm fuzzies in the heart. Love is a disposition of the soul. That's why God will say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as ourselves. Friends, that's one fruit of the Holy Spirit. One mark of the new birth is a true holy love for Christ. A love for God. Because until we are born again, we don't have that love. Not really. We can... We can do a lot of duties. We can do a lot of service. We can be very sacrificial. At the very core of it, friends, we have some other motivation than a love for Christ and a desire for his glory. And when we're born again, friends, God takes that heart of stone, that cold, hard, sin-ridden heart, and he puts in a heart of flesh So that, friends, what now motivates our works, our worship, our ways and deeds is love. Holy affection for Christ and the love for his people. So, friends, let's ask ourselves, is that what motivates me? Well, friends, sometimes our motives are kind of mixed up. You know, in fact, friends, that's part of what it means as sinners Our motives aren't completely pure. There is a pound of flesh in all of our obedience. Selfishness rears its ugly head time and time again. But friends, for the Christian, the root of the matter is there. And the Father sees it. He sees that we truly love his Son and are trusting in him. And also, verse 27, this love and trust, we believe that he has come from God. You know, friends, Jesus uh, is truly man. He is a man among men. He is humanity as God intended. Perfect, holy, good, and upright. But he is no mere man. He is the God-man. And friends, true Christianity, biblical Christianity, is rooted on this proposition, this unchangeable truth, that this one Jesus of Nazareth is not only a man, but he is God incarnate. Truly God and truly man, two natures, one person. Jesus says, I came from God. Jesus is saying, not that he was an angel that became a man or some creature that was in the courtroom of heaven, but 
He was face to face with the Father from all eternity. John 1, 1, the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This, Jesus is saying, is fundamental, that you believe that I am God in truth, that I have come from God. And in verse 28, we see a summary of Christ's mission. He says, I came from the Father. That was my origination. I was with the Father in glory, enjoying Him, enjoying the Spirit, enjoying the spirits of the saints and the angels. I was with the Father. And in the fullness of time, Christ says, verse 28, I came into the world. This is the incarnation. This is the enfleshment of the Son of God. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh. And now, having lived, He will die. He will rise again. He will leave the world. And He will go back to the Father. There's a, there's a return. Again, friends, this is the trajectory of the Lord Jesus. He began from all eternity in the highest of glory. In a world of splendor and love and goodness. Face to face with the Father. Enjoying Him in blessed holiness. And in the fullness of time, the Son of God added to Himself a human nature. And in that addition of a human nature, a true human nature, came a great condescension. Which Philippians 2 tells us about. The humiliation of the Son of God. Friends, from highest of glory to a humble birth in a stable. God, incarnate, subjected himself to need to eat, to drink water, to sleep. God incarnate, because he had taken to himself a true human nature, subjected himself to live in a broken fallen world to experience in his humanity all the evil and scorn of men all of the difficulties of living in a fallen world the son of God was even tempted by the devil himself for 40 days and 40 nights he was in that wilderness and more than that friends that condescension and humiliation continues all the way to the He suffered and died. But then, friends, from there, the trajectory is upward. Back to the glory he had with the Father before the world began. Back to the Father, now as the resurrected Son of Man. Now as the victorious Lion of Judah. Back to reign at his Father's right hand. Friends, I say that because that's not just a a historical movement. But if you're in Christ, that's your movement too. Friends, the believer shares not only in the glory that belongs to the Son and the honor, but also we share in His sufferings. We share in His hardships. We share in the hatred of the world. And friends, no matter how deep it goes, no matter how intense those sufferings may be for Christ's sake, 
there is glory and rest to come. Friend, don't forget that. Whatever trial you may be in in this very moment, whatever suffering you may be enduring, whatever enemies you may have, whatever sin you may see prevailing or coming up in your own life, never forget, dear Christian, that because Christ has risen from the dead and Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, that is our destiny too. Our trial, our suffering, our pain is but a light momentary affliction preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Friends, Jesus has already walked this path. Jesus has already gone down this road. We are, as that hymn says, walking in His footsteps. This isn't new ground, friends. The pilgrims have been walking this ground from the very beginning. And your dear Lord Jesus walked the same. So friends, let us trust Him. Because friends, there is joy coming. Well, in verse 29, the disciples think they've got it. So they say, ah, now you're not, you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. That is why we believe you came from God. In verses 29 to 30, we see the disciples and their true but feeble faith. True but immature faith. Oh, they're really trusting in Jesus. But man, they think they, they know. They think they understand. They think they've got it all together. And that's created in their hearts a sense of pride. Oh, Jesus, you said later, after your appointed hour, then you would be, we would be able to understand. When the Spirit comes, He would lead us into all truth. But now the disciples say, oh, oh, Lord Jesus, now we understand. We get it now. And friends, how often are we like these disciples? Friends, it is so easy in the Christian life to be puffed up with pride. Friends, and, and, and the disciples here are saying, oh, well, Jesus, we do understand. We recognize. And then in verse 30, they give what they know. And these are true things. We know that you know all things. Touching his deity, yes, indeed. Jesus Christ is omniscient. Jesus Christ has all knowledge present before His mind together and at once. He is the all-wise God. Yes, in truth, the disciples have said something true. But do they realize all the ramifications of it? Because if they know that Jesus knows all things, and they truly understood its application, then they would know, oh, and the one who says He knows all things told me that I still can't understand this. That this message of a crucified Messiah is not yet sunk in. But again, that's where the pride comes in. Jesus, we know things. We understand things. And we also know that you don't need anyone to question you. You're above judgment. You're above reproach. You are above all the criticism of men. That's why we believe you came from God. All of these things are true. Jesus does know all things. Jesus doesn't need anybody to question him. And Jesus did come from God. 
It's not that this is false. It's importantly true. But it's the way that the disciples have proposed. They are still thinking that they have the power in themselves to love and follow Christ. The disciples are still basing and putting their confidence in some residual goodness and some ability within themselves to hold to Christ, to understand Christ, to follow Christ. And Jesus is going to rebuke them for it, friends, because this this is the trap that we fall in all the time as Christians, thinking we've gotten to a certain understanding or we've lived a certain amount of time following after Christ. And sometimes we think we've arrived. We, we've finally reached another level and we don't have to depend as closely on the Lord Jesus. We, we've suddenly gotten a little bit of, of, of strength in ourselves and we can do this journey on our own. And friends, we even talk that way, don't we? We, we even talk about how we need to do more things, how we need to fix ourselves. And we're always looking in for our source of strength and stability, and security. And that's a dangerous game to play. Because, friends, we have no abiding strength. We have no ability in and of ourselves. God has promised to keep us. The Father has promised to keep us near Him. The Lord Jesus is faithful in His affection. Friends, and we are wholly and completely dependent on him. And that's why in verse 31, Jesus rebukes them. He says, Jesus answers them, do you now believe? He says, now you believe? Now you get it? And then in verse 32, he gives the rebuke. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. Now, the very rebuke that he said to Peter. Remember, he said, Peter... Before the rooster crows, you deny me three times. Peter was a strong disciple. Peter walked on the water with Jesus. Peter was at the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John. Friends of the, of the apostles, Peter had all kinds of experience with the Lord Jesus. But he had no enduring power in himself. And when he put his confidence in himself and he said, even if all of these others forsake you, Lord, I will not forsake you. Jesus said to him, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you, Peter. So when you are turned, when you return, strengthen the brethren. Friends, when Peter looked to himself, when he looked at his own ability, when he put confidence in his own strength, when that pride emerged in his heart, that was when he fell. And Jesus is now saying that that's not just going to be Peter. That's going to be the whole disciples, all of them. Jesus will be arrested, and they'll all get gone. Now, we know the beloved disciple John and Peter later will follow Jesus and they'll go to the house of the high priest. And we know even John will be there 
at the cross. But when he was arrested, when it was time for him to be betrayed, as the scripture says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus was abandoned. He was betrayed by his dear friends, his closest companions. Each to his own home and will leave me alone. Friends, if anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Friends, we don't have power in ourselves. It's not, friends, that we have enough faith in ourselves, enough integrity in ourselves, enough power in ourselves that we can hold to Christ. Friends, our confidence is that Christ holds us fast. Our confidence is the promise of God where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I call them by name. I give to them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father who is greater than I has given them to me. And no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. Friends, as a Christian, we must keep looking to that hand of a sovereign, faithful God of a loving and faithful Lord Jesus. Friends, if it not be for the grace of God, we would fall at any moment and be cast headlong. But because God has promised to keep us, because God has covenanted to keep all those who come to Christ, we are secure. So friends, we can't look inside for the strength to endure. We must keep looking up. And keep looking out. And that's a humbling truth, isn't it? A humbling truth to realize that all we have is in Christ. But Jesus says, even if I be abandoned, yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. The Father is with the Lord Jesus to the cross and beyond. And yes, for a brief time... The humanity of Christ was exposed to the fury of the Father. Where the Father poured out His wrath. That poison cup the Lord Jesus had to drink. The fullness of the curse of the law came upon the Lord Jesus. Yes, indeed. But the Father was with Him. Though the world forsake Him, the Father was with Him. And friends, that's true for you too. Though the world may forsake you, though you may be betrayed, though you may be abandoned, Your Father in heaven has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So no matter how, friends, alone you may feel today, that's the promise of God to you. As he was with Christ, so he will be with us. So the disciples are humbled. And we're humbled. Lord, I can't do this. How are we to endure in this world with devils filled? Well, Jesus concludes his discourse by reminding his disciples of his purpose in teaching them. And his purpose was that you may have peace. I've said these things to you in me. You may have peace. So, friends, what what is peace? Well, friends, it goes back to the root concept of shalom in the Hebrew. Friends, peace is not just the Cessation of conflict. It's not an armistice. It's not a a cordial cool down. It's not 
drawing a DMZ line and saying, you stay on that side and I'll stay on this side. No, 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 friends. Peace is when there is true, holy communion. True, blessed joy and fellowship. Peace means, friends, not only is the war over, but life and love has been restored. Where there were enemies, there are now friends. Where there was once enmity, there is now love. Where does peace originate, friends? Well, peace originates within God who is peace. God in his three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have enjoyed from all eternity peace, a most blessed and holy communion. And when God created this world, he created human beings, you and I, to enjoy his peace. Friends, you know, this world is in turmoil and war is everywhere. Friends, it's been said that, you know, in the history of the world, peace breaks out occasionally. But the the standard of the war of the world is war, conflict, turmoil, strife. But God created us for peace. To enjoy him, to enjoy one another, to live and to love him and to live and enjoy one another. And when sin entered the world, friends, when we sinned in Adam and when we continued in disobedience, that peace was shattered. And by nature, friends, we are not at peace with God. The scriptures say we are at war with God. We are the enemies of God. We are rebels against the holy God. And it is in Christ Jesus alone that this Holy One makes for peace. And he declares peace to us. He says to rebels in the gospel, lay down your arms, put away your swords. I have satisfied my wrath against your sin in my son, Jesus. Because Jesus died and rose again, we have peace with God. That's the message of the gospel, friends. Friends, when we're talking and sharing the good news with our friends and neighbors and families, we're speaking peace to them. We're saying this is the way of peace. This is the way to have peace with God. It is in Christ and in Christ alone. And now, friends, as believers, that peace has been established And we enjoy it in part. Yet, friends, that peace is often not enjoyed as it could be. And that's what Jesus is saying. In me, you may have peace. He's saying to the disciples, as you are in me, you have this true everlasting union and communion with God. But in me, I want you to have peace one to another. A true settled assurance and confidence in me And in my promises. Because in the world, dear disciples, you will have tribulation. The world can't give us peace. The world promises peace, doesn't it? Peace in our time. But it can't really bring peace. It's constant tribulation. Friends, as the church, we have to understand that. Our peace, our Settled joy and confidence is not in us. It's not even in the institutions that we build or the nations that we create. Our true and lasting peace is only in Christ. We have peace in him that the world neither gives nor can take away. It's true, lasting peace. And we can enjoy that, friends. Today, we taste in part 
Like the little appetizer sent from the king's banquet, friends. He gives to us that peace to enjoy one to another today. But we're in a world of tribulation, a world that we war against, sin without and sin within. But no matter how great the struggle, Jesus concludes, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Friends, in Christ, the Christian not only has peace today and tomorrow and forever, but that peace is assured by the victory. Friends, Jesus has won the war. The battle continues. Your battle continues. My battle continues. We still fight the flesh and the world and the devil. But we don't fight as a boxer beating the air. We don't fight like some of the nihilistic philosophers like Nietzsche who just say everything's meaningless. Therefore, we're going to just spit in the hurricane and try to just boldly face the abyss of nothingness. No, (laughs) we have confidence of victory in Christ. He has won. He is on his throne. He has done for us what he has promised. We are secure in him. And therefore, friends, that peace can be ours today. The war has been won. Satan is a defeated foe. Your flesh, friends, sin that remains within you, its dominion has been broken. It's no longer your master, your Lord. You belong to the victorious Christ. You're his spoils of war. And the world, oh, it looks strong. But it too has been defeated. It too has its end date. Its empire will fall. But the kingdom of our God and our Christ will remain forever. Friends, that's where that peace that we have truly comes home to the heart. Remember the victory. The victory we have in Jesus. So friends, in closing this morning, is that your hope? Are you at peace with God? Do you see in the victorious, conquering Lord Jesus, your blessed hope? Friend, if that's not you today, I pray that you would not harden your heart this morning, but that you would hear the voice of God who says, come to my son and have peace. The scriptures say uh, that Christ, uh, Christ says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon yourself. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Friend, I pray that if you have not yet, that you will come and rest in Christ. And believers, remember that peace, the peace which surpasses all understanding, the peace that God promises will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ and the peace we have with you and with one another. Father, we pray, please help us this week to live in that peace, uh, to work for peace in our homes and in our church. Lord, we pray that we would be a people that are not uh, distraught by our own weakness, but confident in your sovereign grace. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that in Christ you have redeemed us and secured us. 
so that we are your dear children now and forever. Father, be with us this week, we pray, for Christ's sake.